ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the East Go to 11. Once again, Nathan Bell. Joining me as always, Nathan Beard. Nathan, what's going on, man? Nathan Beard. That is not a thing, okay? <laughs> it's a thing right now. Thing. I guess it's fair for now, but that can't stick. Yeah. Um, Nathan Bartleball. Bart and Bells or something like that, right? Bartles and Bells. Or, That's I right. It sounds like alcohol. <laughs> I haven't talked about alcohol in a while. Uh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. You can see I have my um, wizard beard. It's even in better right. shape than it was the last time we did this. It's not white enough. No, it isn't. Well, you, once school starts for my kids, which is next week, by the time we get to Return of the King, we should be there. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, man. And, of course, uh, we have joining us. This is our uh, live Zoom meeting for uh, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Uh, Nathan, you and I spent a longer time discussing the Fellowship of the Rings, so we decided to do kind of a shorter one with the two towers and get more of our listener feedback. And so I know that there are going to be some people jumping in and out, so I'm just going to be hanging out on my phone here as well as on Zoom so I can let people into the meeting as they show up. Um, but we have uh, Chip Bauer who joined us last time. How you doing, Chip? Doing very well, thanks. Awesome, awesome. And buddy of yours, Nathan, David Hill. How you doing, David? Good. Sorry I missed the uh, the fellowship one, but I'm happy to be here for this one. Awesome. Yeah, we're excited. We're excited. And uh, just, uh, you know, quickly go back, since you weren't on that one, uh, David, just uh, get your thoughts on the fellowship. Just, you know, briefly, hour or so. Well, I mean, the book or the, the book of the moon? Uh, whichever oh. one. Yeah. <laughs> be careful. This is Dave, who is the Tolkien expert you know i'm not even sure is that a map of middle earth in the back there david uh, no that would be a map of real earth in the back okay um well. yeah actually i i did have a chance to go reread for the first time in a few years uh with all the the quarantine stuff that was going on so it was actually it was nice um i don't know i love it's hard because i don't really see them as separate books and just see them as parts of the whole thing um but i love the fellowship um uh, the movie uh, Two Towers, honestly, is was probably my least favorite of the three films, um, and uh, have some issues with some of the choices that Jackson made. But, um, but as far as the Fellowship, it's it's probably my favorite of the films, and it is. But it's hard to it's hard for as far as the book goes to pick yeah. a part of the book that's my favorite. It just it is. Um, yeah. So. Let, let me let me ask you this: What do you think gives uh, Fellowship such rereadability, or or any of them such rereadability? Because you, I think all of us have read them and read them multiple times at this point in our life. So, so David, what 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 do you think gives it that rereadability? Um, probably um, the fact that I mean, I don't know, it's something I haven't really thought about, but I guess it's the um, the coming together of the fellowship from the disparate places in Middle Earth where they're from, and the banding together to uh, on the on the great the great quest of of the ring and all of it together, we get a chance to see uh, where all of them come from and how all of them meet at uh, Rivendell and how all of them set out. Um, the um, I, I think I think Tolkien does a really good job setting up. Middle Earth, particularly the Shire with um, the Hobbits. Uh, he, having already had the Hobbit as an earlier work, he's already done some of the 
he's already done some of the groundwork for that, but um, I, I've always loved his uh, his his writing of, of the Shire and the, the setup for it. Um, it's it's one of the places that if I could pick a book to escape into from from real life, it's a place I could be very happy living out my days if if uh, if I could do that. Nice, nice. What was that, Chip? Minus the orcs, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, before the orcs get to the Shire, I'm not surprised at all that you would want to live in the Shire, Dave. That seems it would definitely suit you. Um, I think uh, I think that's one of the things they really nailed really well in the first book was the Shire. Like of all the big moments to see, and I think we talked about this the last time, like all the visual moments that happened in the series, even when the time they get to Minas, Minas Tirith and all that, to me, the bad, the like most like, wow, we're in Middle Earth shot is when Gandalf's cart crests that first hill and you see Bag End on the top of the Shire. That shot and the music and everything, to me, there was no other shot that did it better than that. Although there's plenty of great scenes, it just that was it. And like you said, Dave, it's like, man, I'd love to live here. I think that's the one thing the, the movie absolutely nailed so, so perfectly. Yeah. I could agree with Chip, let me, let me ask you the same question um, I asked Dave there. What, what do you think gives the book such uh, sustainability and rereadability? Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question. I appreciated David's answer to that. Um, I've read it uh, three times in whole. I've probably read The Hobbit five or six times. Um, but as I mentioned, I think in the last episode on the, on the Fellowship, one of the things that struck me, uh, and when we read the Fellowship, I hadn't completed the trilogy at that point. I think it was just beginning the Two Towers uh, back in July when we had the discussion. But uh, just the flow, uh, I, 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 again, I'll say again that just the language, the writing is just so beautiful. And I did, in my prior readings, I hadn't been as aware of that. I, you know, the first couple of times you read something like that, it's got such depth of character, which is part of my answer. Uh, you get to in, uh, meet the characters one by one, as David mentioned, as they're introduced into the fellowship. Uh, and then you get some of their backstory. You get uh, a slow feed on uh, their process through the whole journey. And uh, I found in this reading uh, that it just never gets dull to me. Uh, different people are going to have different opinions of that, but for us here, I found that it never got dull. It never really lets up in the action or the, just the way the, the language itself flows. And I was just struck again by the beauty. And I may have touched on last time another thing I like, uh, like David said and Nathan both already, when you see it in the film, when you first see the Shire, yeah, you want to live there. Just the green, um, the music uh, goes to an Irish tune. Uh, still in New Zealand, but having been to Ireland once, uh, it reflects that so well in the music and the scenery there. Um, so those are two of the things that, uh, that grabbed me as well. But overall, what, what kept me going this time was just the language and realizing it doesn't really, uh, um, it, it just flows beautifully. And, and the words are, all the writing he did with that, the words just seem to be chosen so carefully. And descriptively, you're able to completely form in your mind, even apart from the film, your own idea so well of what things look like. Not so much the physical descriptions of each of the characters, although those are well brought out. But you can really create the images that a good writer wants you to, to capture 
Um, so yeah, those are some of my initial thoughts on that. And um, the other thing that struck me throughout the whole book, beginning to end, um, was just his love for nature. Uh, I've mentioned before, I think, I've been a bird watcher for over 40 years. And he names the birds, he names the trees when they're introduced. I wanted to find the one passage in the book, I couldn't find it again, where he describes the bird song that he hears. I don't remember if it was a nightingale or a chiff chaff, a chaff or what he described, but uh, it was just so well done. So that, again, that just sets, as, as uh, both of you already mentioned, just sets, sets the table so well, and you just don't want to stop. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Uh, Dave, since we did this, I'm not going to spend too much time because we are going to talk about Two Towers, but um, looking at uh, Fellowship overall, uh, favorite character or two? Well, I've always been a big fan of Sam, and that was true even before I saw Aston's portrayal of him in films, but... um, yeah, um, Sam would probably, if I had to pick one, and it's not the easiest thing to do, it would, he would probably be my, my favorite character. Um, I will say, um, watching uh, watching Bean's portrayal of Boromir definitely elevated him, uh, in my opinion, from when I read it the first time. Um, and I don't even know if, and I probably, now that I, every time I reread it, I read it through the lens of watching Bean's portrayal on film. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably just because I happen to love Sean Bean as an actor. Um, and then probably after that, uh, would my next favorite would probably be Faramir, follow up closely by Erdogan. Um I like the heroic archetypes that both of them show, particularly with Faramir, um, with in the book with his steadfast Faramir, <laughs> yeah, which is which is one of my issues with with Jackson's towers. Um, I don't really care so much for his uh, his portray uh, the way the way he was written. And I know your original question was about uh, the fellowship, so I think this is probably a little bit outside of the scope of the original question, but. Um, um, so within the within fellowship would probably be Sam and would be Aragorn. Not Tom Bombadil. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I've never really known quite what to make of him. We, we discussed that last time. It is hard to know exactly what to make of him because he just isn't that easy to pin down. It isn't so simply to say, oh, he's the representation of God or he's the trickster character. I mean, he's kind of all of them at various points, and at another point, he just doesn't seem to care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, very cool. Very cool. Um, so yeah, just you know, wanted to wanted to get your thoughts on that, and um, you know, before we kind of rode right into two towers, uh, no pun intended there. But um, you know, as we uh, discussed um, on our episode that we did, Nathan, you know, uh, all the movies end very differently than um, the books. And you, you have something similar that goes on with Fellowship. I think, I think both the uh, book and the movie have similar endings in them, but um, they, they, are, they are subtly different with, with their timelines and things like that. And so um, when we, what were your thoughts about the way um, 
fellowship ended, and this could be, you know, for anyone, the way fellowship ended um, and the way Two Towers picked up, what, throw that out there. So just kind of start there. The ending of fellowship and then the beginning of Two Towers, what were your thoughts about how he did that and broke that up? Nate, you're specifically talking about the break that Tolkien, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tolkien yeah, is separated. Tolkien made, yeah, yeah. Which is kind of like what Dave, I think, was alluding to. It's a little arbitrary in a certain sense because it is hard, I think, to view them. They weren't necessarily conceived as three separate pieces. Mm-hmm. They are almost sort of incidentally three separate pieces. Um, obviously, you do have that sense of there are new journeys beginning, although the book has a little bit less of that because we're still picking up on exactly what has transpired with Boromir at the start. So actually, the book probably is more of a cliffhanger, really, than the than the movie does, because the movie definitely has a how are we going to get the hobbits back, but it at least wraps up what's occurred with Boromir, and it set them off on a new chapter. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, I mean, I think it's about the medium. I think... Um, the book, because it was conceived as one whole thing, it can kind of stop wherever it wants to stop. But film, as a medium, kind of needs to give you a more more solid conclusion to it. So I think it. I think what Jackson did there in the way he ended Fellowship makes a lot of sense. And I think from a cinema perspective, from a cinematic perspective, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I from I. I I generally wish that Jackson had made a number of choices that were more accurate to the book, but I have no problem with the way he ended fellowship. Let me ask a quick question, Dave, because I, I know you have a, a lar- like a, a wealth of Tolkien knowledge. Do you know, and I don't per se, I, I probably have read it before, but I don't remember. Do you know how it went about in terms of the books getting released and the publishing? Like, was that, was, was Tolkien sort of pressed to break them up in a certain way? Did he choose that? Uh, solely independently, or was it sort of a was the like publishing? Uh, I don't. Company? I don't think. I don't think Alan Unwin did much in the way of pressuring him to structure his book in any particular way. I'm sure they had some pressure as far as deadlines, but I think he wrote, and I think they let him write. Uh, I, I don't think they were of a mind to uh, to dictate editorially what. Yeah, I, I was thinking more about terms of breaking it up. If he had just said, "Okay, this is where book one ends versus book two, book three." No, I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I, they were published. They they were published separate, three separate parts. Um, but I, I don't think I think Tolkien finished where Tolkien wanted to finish. I don't think the publishing house did. Yeah, I actually did some reading on that over the summer, and I think that's pretty accurate. I don't think the publisher put undue pressure on him as to. They just said, you're not going to release this as one book. Nobody's going to read this as one book. Please figure out a way to split it. So I think it fell naturally into the divisions that were created. Yeah, and I think for the most part, particularly I'm sure we'll get to it, I think the Two Towers, of course, has a very logical like cliffhanger conclusion. But it's not too much of a cliffhanger. You know, It doesn't really leave you hanging that much. And of course, Tolk, I mean, Jackson did things that totally sort of destabilize that even even being a consideration because of, of some of the things he did. Yeah. And, and I know one of the things that we'll get into because um, Dave, David, I agree with you. I think that um, the, the movie two towers is, is the weaker um, between, I mean, every, you know, any, any type of medium that you're looking at, it's, it's interesting to see the battles and things like that. But when, particularly when you read 
how it's brought from the book to the movie, you can see that there were uh, several choices that were made, um, like I said, most particularly in that movie, that you're kind of scratching your head going, really? You did that as opposed to that? And then, you know, by the time you get to The Hobbit, it just goes completely off the rails. Um, but uh, so... You know, the story is, is progressing and moving on. Um, what, one of the things that I want to talk about is we have this common theme um, in, in these themes that, because like you said, it is, it is one story that's being told. Um, and we're, we're getting it in these three separate parts. But even within that, their, their journey is broken up because you enter into this, uh, or, or more fully enter into this new land, uh, Rohan, and the hobbits take uh, Mary and Pippin take their kind of side adventure and quest that that brings them with the Ents, and then of course we're working our way through Emin Wheel and you know the the Dead Marshes and all that with Sam and Frodo, and so um, just you know take on how that's portrayed in the book, and then the portrayal of that in the movie. And your thoughts did did one do better than the other? Oh, I don't know. Um, other than Legolas' somewhat tenuous grasp on geography, um, <laughs> I, um, I, I, I don't really have much complaint as far as the early part of The Two Towers. Um, I, 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 think, I think it was fine. I thought it was realized pretty well um, for what... Oh, the... the <laughs> That's fine, no worries. <laughs> that would be Rosie. That's fantastic. Who actually, the ending of King funny, Kong. funny enough, is actually named for Rosie Cotton. Oh, really? Nice. Um, <laughs> There's not one on there now. I'll, I'll give you the... No, it's just off screen. <laughs> yeah, um, no, I thought the early part of, of Two Towers was, was fine. I, I mean, obviously, it differs from the book a little bit because of... The, he, the, the Jackson incorporated a little bit of Tolkien's Two Towers into the end of Fellowship, but beyond that, um, yeah, I, I thought it was, I thought it was done pretty well. Um, yeah, I thought it was done pretty well. Yeah. I like the way the uh, movie opens with the flashback to the, um, uh, with Gandalf and his fall at the, what's the bridge of, I forget the name wrong. Casa Doom. Casa Doom. And um, I thought that was a clever way to, to get Gandalf back into the story. Um, and the way Jackson breaks up the three movies, uh, like say, done cinematically, I think as David mentioned, which was fairly good, but it led, uh, gave just a little bit of choppiness to the story. He chose different endings um, for the, the movies as opposed to the books all of which are fine to create the flow he wanted to for the movie. Um, but I thought uh, the early part of Two Towers was was better than, than the ending part. Um, beginning to set up, he gets, uh, that's where he gets more and more into the, the great battles that are going to take place. So he, he spends more time on the battles than the books ever do. Um, um, but, but yeah, not even it's not even a comparison because <laughs> I think uh, Helm's Deep is a couple of paragraphs, right, or a chapter maybe. Is it, yeah, it's a chapter. Yeah, with, with no elves. I feel yes, yeah. to point out, although I'm sure that will be discussed. Yeah, and um, I, 
certain elements that you brought in, uh, the tracking scene that occurs early on when Aragorn uh, is beginning to search for Miriam Pippin, how he finds the leaf. Um, that's, that's actually longer in the book than they spend in the movie with it, which mm-hmm. I think is interesting. Well, they eat breakfast longer in the books than they have battles most of the time. <laughs> that's true. Sometimes that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but not much. I mean, that was kind of the the beauty of the writing. Um, right. So one of the things we had talked about last time would be probably where we, I think we spent a lot of time, Nathan and I, we're talking about the characterizations, particularly in the book, because at this point, this is a point where we have some major characters that haven't really been in the story to such a degree. Gollum has been sort of teased out a little bit in Fellowship, but uh, in in the book and in the film, and then he kind of shows up. We talked a lot about, because I do think there's a decent amount of difference, not a difference, but there's different focal points between what Tolkien chooses to focus on with with Gollum and what Jackson chooses to focus on on Gollum. And we had different feelings on how well we thought that worked or didn't work and then of course the whole Rohan thing with uh, for me you know King Theoden I think he's another really interesting character and then you have Treebeard which is also a, a very different kind of character and a character I think hard to make easier for Tolkien I think to make it work in fantasy writing than it is for Jackson not that he doesn't make it work but for Jackson to make that character work on screen to me that that character works at all on screen was one of the was one of the highlights of the two towers is like, Oh wow, that actually kind of works like to an extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, I think I mentioned in the, with the first film, what kind of drew me in was the opening of that when he captured the voice of God that was very similar to what I had in my mind for all the years of reading it. Um, and when I saw Fangorn, it was much the same. Now, when I reread it this year, uh, Fangorn, I think has a different, I'm not going to be able to put my finger on, but it's just a different character, I think, in the book than what's portrayed in the film. But to make trees walk and make them look believable <laughs> in the movie and mm. give them personality, uh, I thought was remarkable. So that's what kind of drew me to the two towers. Just I, I remember anticipating uh, before the movie came out, well, what's this going to look like, walking trees? Because um, you kind of knew he was going to do well. You just didn't know what it would look like. Yeah. What about your thoughts on some of that stuff, um, David? You know, the like what Nathan said, just kind of, you know, the characters and how they're portrayed and developed. I know we're going to get to, um, I think probably it's safe to say that, that Faramir was uh, the most, uh, how can I put this? Um, Decimated character. Thank you, <laughs> yes. Mutilated. You, you, um, you, you used a, a, a more Christian-y word than I would say. <laughs> um, and I, you Diminished know, and so, is probably. Thank you, yeah. yes. But but even your our disagreements, like you were talking about, Nathan, with Gollum, there, there was still, I, I feel like you're right, the essence of who Gollum was was still there. Um, and so what are your thoughts on that, David? Well, I mean, even more than Faramir, I think the character that had the most violence done upon him was was Frodo. Mm-hmm. Um, Frodo gets played for an absolute idiot by Gollum in the films, and it's mm-hmm. made very clear in the books that Frodo acts kindly towards Gollum, but he has no illusions over who Gollum is. I mean, the idea that Frodo in the third film would tell Sam to go home and would go off with Gollum is just completely nonsensical. It it, it 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 
it's it's just I, I find it just to be completely ridiculous and completely against who the character that um, that Tolkien wrote uh, Frodo to be. Frodo wasn't uh, Frodo is wasn't isn't the kind of naive childlike person that Jackson write, writes him as. He was a very he he was he was he was an agent in his own right. He was very, he was he was uh, as wise as short of Bilbo. He was as wise a hobbit as it gets out there. And there's it it's 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 been it's been frustrating to me ever since I watched the way Jackson dealt with Frodo later in the movies, and just it it's, it still frustrates me to this day. And Faramir is another example. Um, Faramir in the books wouldn't take the thing if he found it by the roadside, even if all of Minas Tirith were falling into ruin and he alone could save it. Um, well, I mean, Faramir gets to that point, but it shouldn't take getting to that point. I think Jackson had the idea that portraying characters like Aragorn and Faramir as paragons from the beginning, which is the way Tolkien wrote them, um, is, is boring and isn't believable which I very much disagree with. Uh, but I think that was his, that was where he was coming from when he was writing these characters. Um, and I, I personally think it's a little unfortunate. Yeah. And I, we had a, we had actually, that was one of the major points we talked about last time, Nathan, where we yeah. had differed sort of on, um, I think we were talking about the nature of how Gollum is presented, although I think that was your primary argument, Nathan, even though a lot of it happens in Return of the King, is how Frodo perceives and interacts with Gollum. Yeah. Uh, and now my perspective on it was, you're absolutely right, Dave, that I think a lot of it, we had talked about that too, that Tolkien writes these characters, sends them on a journey, and the journey is interesting because it's giving this world as they go along, right? And so some of the drama isn't necessarily coming from what are these people going to do next? And it, it's, I mean, if we're being fair, while they are great characters, the Lord of the Rings is not, they're not character pieces. They may be somewhat character driven, but sometimes it reads like a travelogue. Sometimes it reads like poetry. Sometimes it reads like a, like a historical recollection mm-hmm. of events. That's what makes it kind of special. So, and that's what also sets it apart, makes it unique. But then everyone who's copied, it sort of, you know, tries to follow a template or something like that. And I think, Jackson gets stuck in that writer's thing, particularly for film, is, oh, we need to have some dramatic tension, and so we char- characters need to doubt themselves. And there's no problem with the doubt, uh, but it, it gets carried away because some of these characters, who they are, we're meant to see how they crash up against the ring, right, even in the book. And so Faramir's role is very different than Boromir's role. So what does Jackson do? He tries to do almost a bait and switch where we're so i don't think i honestly think there's a bit of a mistranslation i don't think jackson actually achieved what he was trying to do with faramir i don't think that he's really trying to show i think what he was attempting to do was have faramir's actions perceived by frodo to be more sinister than they really are but they actually just kind of look sinister you know what i mean they look sinister <laughs> our eyes and everybody else's eyes and you've got them kicking Gollum and stuff like that and part of that also i think ties into the fact that i believe uh, my feeling is that in the two towers of the film they humanize Gollum, or yeah humanize is the right word much more than he was in the books not that not that not that it wasn't clear that that was going on with him they really try to give him a character arc and also give him the feeling of 
will Gollum possibly be redeemed? I mean, you get to the end of Two Towers, and you're almost sitting there thinking, man, you've really set this guy up. Like, when he does what he does in the next story, technically what he does in the Two Towers, but Jackson moved it to the third, you get that feeling that he gives you a moment where you think, is Gollum possibly capable of being redeemed? Now, me personally, I actually like that. I think that he gives Gollum a lot more person not personality but he gives them more of a relatable context in the film i think the Gollum is the masterpiece of the two towers as a film both in the visualization what andy circus does with him and the way he behaves because you do get to a certain point in the film and i never really felt it in the books where i actually did want to see him redeemed particularly that scene where he's talking he's that schizophrenic moment where he's talking to himself and he comes to the conclusion we don't need you anymore you know someone else looks out for us now and his fear is momentarily gone and it subsides now the problem with that kind of translation is it sets it up to look like you know, the ring has done all this to him, which isn't completely true. The ring has sort of done what it does to everybody else, right? It exasperates who they really are to begin with, to some extent. And it's done a number on him beyond anybody else. But then what told, what Jackson seems to go out of his way to do in the third film is to show that the ring is basically turning Frodo into another Gollum or another Smeagol, you know, which probably never would have happened even after he puts the ring on, you know, that Frodo's more likely to become Sauron then he's likely to become Gollum if all things are made equal. But instead, I think he tries, he tries too hard to make it look like Frodo is going down Gollum's pathway, and that's why he's more susceptible to wanting to trust him more than he should. I mean, if you look at what's in the book, um, Gollum is just a murderer who is a, yeah. a fisherman and a murderer, whereas Frodo is basically a lord among us. So, I mean, I think that's, probably, that's correct. I think a large part of certainly the way I read it now similar to Boromir is that Andy Serkis was so brilliant in the role that I, I see it through the lens of Serkis' performance. Uh, one thing, I, one other thing, um, I had a, had a chance during the whole COVID thing to, to listen to Serkis read The Hobbit, and I thought that was absolutely wonderful, and I'd commend it to anyone who hasn't had a chance to listen and read through it. We turned it on while he was doing it. Yeah, it was early on, and uh, we turned it on just as he we had turned it on just as he got to riddles in the dark. And that's what we listened to was, yeah, he was, and he, of course he did his whole voice. Now, what did you guys think about Gollum and movie versus book or like, what was that like for you? Cause again, and it's, I should also mention that Dave, I think we were roommates when almost all of these movies came out, not the first yeah. one, but we, we have seen all three of these in the theater when they first released. And we did the midnight showings, I think of two towers and, mm -hmm. and, yeah. uh, and uh, Return of the King, and I just remember being super impressed when we. And they also did an amazing job. And correct me if I'm wrong. We never saw what Gollum looked like until the film actually played. Like not truly like that. There were there were barely any still shots. Like now we see everything in a trailer. But when Gollum finally leaps over that cliff, we saw a basic you know outline of his silhouette climbing the on the, his back climbing the rock. But I don't mm -hmm. think I had seen a full on shot of Gollum until I was sitting in the movie theater. I think the Senator Theater is where we were. And then he yeah. he falls down and he stands sitting there. That's the first time I'd fully seen him. Well, I mean, part of that is just kind of the relative. Uh, infancy of the internet at the time. I mean, that was back in the early 2000s. The internet was really just really becoming a thing. I don't think Jackson could have kept Gollum under wraps today if he was making the film now the way he did back then. But, um, yeah, um, yeah, I think that's right. To answer part of your question, um, for Gollum, like I said, it had been about 18 or 19 years since I'd read the book to when I first started seeing the movies. 
And in going back to the book this time, I actually was surprised by the characterization of Gollum and uh, I'm going to mix up the names again, Faramir and Baramir. Um, but Jackson completely changed the, the personality of Faramir and I'm reading it in the book and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I didn't, I didn't remember this from the reading. Yeah. Uh, what a decent guy he was and he wasn't about to steal the ring and take over the fellowship uh, if, I, if I remember <laughs> from the book correctly. Um, so that was rather a surprise this time. And in terms of the amount of time uh, Gollum takes in the book versus the movie, he's given a lot more screen time than what the books put together give him. Um, and not that that's necessarily a bad thing. It's such a strong, uh, memorable and uh, character. And like you said, very humanized, uh, especially with the schizophrenia scene. It's, it's actually gut-wrenching to realize that this is not unlike what some people go through. Um, to completely distance one part of yourself to another. And I just think it adds a whole level of drama to the film and what's going what's to come ahead. You don't know which way he's going to turn. I think you're right, Nathan, that uh, you know, he does, it does appear that he's going to have a chance for redemption. Um, but, of course, everybody remembers the end of both the book and the movie <laughs> and, um, with uh, The Return of the King. So uh, you know what's going to happen. But even still... Uh, that he's given that opportunity for redemption uh, does speak to what God provides for us. So that's um, a, it's a compelling picture. Well, one of the things that I, you know, I've been thinking about as I was going through and, and rereading both of these, and correct me if I'm wrong, in um, the fellowship, Aragorn actually doesn't have that big moment of temptation where Frodo offers him the ring, correct? He doesn't see Frodo. Frodo escapes, and yeah. that totally goes by the wayside. And I, and I felt like when I was reading the book that the, the way that the description of Faramir and Aragorn is described, like, like their kindred spirits are cut from the same cloth. And so I felt like reading it, this is the decision that Aragorn would have made if the ring was presented to him. And I felt like that that idea of who the Rangers were and who he had set up the Rangers to be and their their lineage and their history and everything that had just kind of been in there was was undone with that. And and so you have this these two like you were talking about, these two um, heroic archetype characters who would have made the same decision independent of one another. But, but I felt like Tolkien did a good job of showing us, you know, this is what Aragorn would have done. He's not here. He's not making the decision, but if he had been given that decision, but I almost feel like Jackson was like, well, you know, we did it with Aragorn. So we're bringing in this character, Faramir. People don't really know about, you know, the men of the North and the Rangers and all that stuff. So let's just kind of, you know, make Faramir like this. And I really, I think it was just it, like everybody's been saying, it was such a disservice to that character and, and the strength that he had. Um, because again, you just, you had all throughout Tolkien's work, you have such, um, you know, even reading the Silmarillion, you have the characters who are, you know, just going to go in, they're going to succumb to the temptation, no matter who's in charge, no matter what evil is abounding. And then you have the ones that are going to stand up and fight against it. Um, and, you know, I remember going back and rereading the Silmarillion recently. And, 
you know, them talking about Aragorn in light of, you know, his ancestors and, you know, he had all the grace and strength of them um, in this one person, you know, and who he is. And I, I felt like, you know, you just, you miss so much of some of that going on. And again, Tolkien's world is so huge. You can't possibly fit it into, you know, these three movies that are coming out. But at the same time, I felt like Jackson traded uh, things that were um, that weren't in the book uh, for things that were in the book, and and I felt like that's where you know it really started slipping again. You know, you have what a couple chapters of, or, or you know, a chapter or a couple you know pages of the battle at Helm's Deep. And, you know, that's what a third or more of the movie we get. Um, and so I felt like there was just so much that got um, sped up, particularly in the two towers. So much got sped up and glossed over um, for the sake of focusing on the battles um, where, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. The battle was cool. But like you said, David, uh, elves weren't there. Um, you know, it made for, you know, fun, you know, time seeing Legolas slide down on the shield, but it's like, you know, it, I, I can see that in a lot of different action movies. You know, when I was going to see Lord of the Rings, I wanted to see an adventure story. That's what I wanted to see was the adventure, the, the, the fellowship, even though they're, you know, smattered all about, I wanted to see them and I wanted to see their story continuing in their different directions. Well, and I will say, and you know me, all of you guys know that I'm not one to necessarily defend battle scenes because I get bored by them pretty easily. But you have to you have to give that when it released. You do have to give that uh, the Battle of Helm's Deep its due, at least as a cinematic like action scene, because it was pretty impressive. In fact, that's one of the things that it made it difficult to do in Return of the King is suddenly now they've got to outdo that action scene. And it, it's, it, it's over the top. Of course, it's rain and in the dark and everything. But I think, you know, we think back to when we saw that, the, the thing that we talked about, Nathan, was the kind of unfortunate thing is it becomes the magnetic center of the movie, right? Like, mm-hmm. as opposed to Frodo and Sam, it doesn't, it's the centerpiece is leading up to this battle at Helm's Deep. I don't think it's the best thing in the movie, but I do remember seeing it and being like, okay, they've just pushed the envelope in cinematic mm-hmm. filmmaking terms. They pushed it a little bit further. Now, unfortunately, everybody started to copy all that. So you got CGI armies in every third movie for about five or six years. But I mean, I think we can all, I think we can all agree that that one is still, I have to admit, it's, it's really well done. I'm glad they didn't put Arwen at the Battle of Helm's Deep. You know, but she was there, but they removed it. But yeah, um, but I, I think that that's an it's an an impressive sequence. But you do lose some things here or there. I agree with you guys that it is to me the weakest of the three movies. There's still a lot I like in it. I particularly like Chip what you said about that opening scene with Gandalf. Like. It is nice, and all three movies have it. They have this opening that sort of is separate from the films that gives you a glimpse into something. And so we had, of course, the history of Middle-earth in a sense, or the history of the fall of Sauron in the first movie. So it was neat to go in and see, just to kind of rewind a little bit and see that battle with the with the Balrog. Um, question I had, what did you guys think about the character of Theoden in a combination of the film and the book? Or not combination, but comparative You and I can throw out our thoughts, Nathan, while they're thinking. 
No worries. I, me, I loved the way, uh, not necessarily the writing, but I think Bernard Hill gave a really excellent, nuanced performance with that. I mean, honestly, in the films, I think when Thaden comes in, he's one of my favorite characters in these last two films, and particularly in this one. It's a lot to do with a little bit, almost an under, I know there's some over-the-top moments, but it's a mostly an understated performance as a guy who feels like he's really messed things up. Although in the book, he has less culpability, right? Because he was technically what, or in the movie, he has almost less right. culpability because he's what, like, possessed, kind of. Right. But he has like, this... Yeah. Yeah. He has this sadness to him and his weariness, and it almost culminates in one shot that ends up in the third film when, when the um, the king of the Nazgul is flying in for him, and you just see his whole countenance drop. Mm-hmm. He has a lot of that acting with his facial features and his expressions, and the one he says the line about a father should never bury their child. That's something that, mm-hmm. that Hill did on his own in the moment, mm-hmm. and I, it, it just seemed like a very realistic performance, a very real embodiment of a grieving father, a guy who doesn't know how he's going to lead his people, somebody who feels like everybody's abandoned him. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say the same thing. I thought Hill's performance was brilliant. Um, I, I, again, I think Hill's Theoden, courtesy of Jackson, follows the victim of the same, some of the same stuff that Aragorn and Faramir do in terms of his self-doubt and his unwillingness to right out um, to meet the orcs at Home's Deep and then eventually to come initially to the aid of Gondor in the third one. But eventually he gets with the program, which seems to kind of be the way it works for these folks in movies. Um, <laughs> I think he sells uh, it better, I, though, yeah. I, I love Hill's portrayal, and I would agree. Uh, Theoden, the character, has less culpability in the film than in the book because Saruman basically had taken him over and was using him for his own uh, for his own ends, Um Unlike in the book, where he's just down and depressed and discouraged, and because Grimma is whispering in his ear and things are going bad and the orcs are attacking and, and all, of it. and and that's understandable. So it's not that it's not that um, Thaden doesn't have those moments even in the book. He just once Gandalf comes in and lifts the veil of weariness and. <clears throat> Confusion and sorrow and all those other things, he rises and he is the Theoden um, at the Pelennor Fields, but all the way through the book. Um, but yeah, I, I, I thought Hill's portrayal of the film, of, of Theoden in the film. And that's what Nathan and I said last time. It feels like Bernard Hill was playing had read the two towers and was playing the book version and not right. necessarily, you know, and Jackson like you said, was writing a different version. Yes, <laughs> because, because Hill plays it as the guy who has a lot to be sort of, uh, you know, he feels very reluctant and, and he, it almost feels like the things he can't do now are because of the failings he had before. But again, that really only comes from the book. And, and you're right that once the weariness is drawn out, I don't mind that some of those characters keep some of their, their doubts, but I think it's something you said earlier, Nathan, made me think, you know, the way Jackson presents Aragorn is really the way Faramir is, right? Like the moments of doubt. So it's almost like Aragorn and his little moments of doubt or moments where he's presented like the way in the fellowship when he mm-hmm. has the moment where he has the ring and he decides not to do it. That's really a Faramir kind of moment. But in doing that, he's made Faramir even worse. <laughs> you know, he kind of makes them, Faramir in the movies is so crippled with doubt and daddy issues that it's almost a little like embarrassing. <laughs> Well, then he proceeds to force march Frodo and Sam to Osgiliath, where they're almost taken. That makes no sense. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to mention Wormtongue. Um, I made a note when I was watching the film that 
uh, somehow he was made more despicable than what he was in the book. Um, so that's, that's Brad Dourif right there. Excuse me? Brad Dourif, the actor, yeah, he could he could do that kind of thing. Yeah, it was. and Nathan, I remember joking with you at the time um, where he's up in the tower and he's like, "There is my lord, there is no army that can assault Helm's Deep." And then it's like, "Did you look in the backyard?" Kind of thing. And <laughs> yeah. this whole big massive Uruk army back there. It's like, how do you miss that coming into coming into? It's, it's speaking of things that don't make sense. And but I did like um, Hill's performance, as you said. Uh, both, all of you. Uh, I liked his kingliness, very thoughtful, uh, feeling, as you just mentioned, the weight of what's going on, um, and you know, just trying to do what's right for everybody, and um, he's trapped for a time and, and held from being that, but uh, rises, rises up after uh, Gandalf makes it better, and it's some good scenes. But, you know, it's, it's you watch him and think, wow, you know, you could you can see why this guy's a king and, and he just understands what he's supposed to do, but is frustrated by his humanness and not being able to take care of it all at once. And I had heard that Jackson was interested in him for that role, like after he saw he was the captain of the Titanic. It's like of the captain of the Titanic, you know, has about the same qualities. You need to be the, the guy who's in, is the head of, uh, of Rohan. But um, yeah. yeah, you mentioned that scene, though, Dave, where he comes in. You're right. Like the Orthanc is just kind of sitting there. Right. And it's all sort of flat. And yet there's a giant army on the back door. And it's like, how did he not see that? Um, but uh, there's a there is a, uh, some things Jackson added, I thought, were very neat. There were some neat little touches to there. And one of those neat touches is we know we don't see, obviously, a lot of like uh, through the way Duraf plays. And we don't see a lot of Grima's like humanity in terms of him being being one of the men of the West originally. But I do like that moment when he finally see, and I don't know what it's in response to exactly, but he sees the army and the sheer like massiveness of it and the fact that they're going to wipe every single one of them out. And you see tears running down his face. So that was a neat touch. Like mm-hmm. when Durf is standing there, Grima Wormtongue is looking at them and and of course uh, Saruman is reveling in it all and he's just got tears streaming down his face. I don't know if it's at all of how what's in front of him or just this idea that yeah, we've pretty much doomed <laughs> They're doomed. Yeah, he does have sort of a mustache twirly villain at, at points in the films. Christopher Lee does between the rip all the trees down in the first one and the uh, <laughs> yes, and his his teeth and everything. Yeah, it's like um, it's a bit overdone because I think Lee, you can you can and you you've probably heard some of them. Lee na- has done narrations of the Lord of the Rings, the books, and I think the Silmarillion and stuff like that. And Lee was very much a big Tolkien fan. I think the. Mm-hmm the not tragedy but the kind of sad thing and aside from him getting like literally booted out of, of return of the king and the theatrical cut which was nonsense and then they couldn't even put his little picture at the end but the boromir was there <laughs> but the uh yeah. i think the sad thing is lee is actually was a very good actor and he could have easily handled the more stately saruman that with some nuance and lee could play mustache twirling villains perfectly and he does play a good like super evil Saruman but I think he would have been even better as a more nuanced Saruman as a guy who almost you know appropriate for our times as a guy who's he sees the writing on the wall and he knows better but he's going to sell himself out anyway you know he's gonna he's gonna join the other side because it seems like it's the best thing to do in the moment 
Well, I think you do get a little of that when Lee came back to do Saruman and the Hobbit. Well, you get a chance. You to get more of that, yeah. And I think that's a good sign. Unfortunately, he didn't really have a lot to do. But you get that picture. And Lee was older and even a little more frail then. You mm. kind of wish that he had Jackson had given him more to chew on in, at this point in time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the you know things that um, we had been looking at Nathan was uh, that kind of ending and break because uh, in the two towers going into uh, Return of the King because uh, of course you know ends in two completely different places between the book and the movie um, and I don't know we recorded what like a month ago. Um, so I don't even remember what we said about it, but I'm interested um, <laughs> in what we said something. Um, I'm interested to know uh, what David and Chip thought about that, that break and where they decided to leave off into towers and then pick up and return of the King. Well, I mean, for me, I, I wish they had put Shelob at the end of, um, at the end of two towers, although maybe Jackson made the determination that, there's just not nearly as much source material from Return of the Jedi, or Return of the King, excuse me. Um, <laughs> we need Ewoks. Uh, it could have happened. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah um, and so maybe he was doing that in part to pad uh, Return of the King. Uh, I think um, it would have given more of an almost Empire Strikes Back kind of feel to have Frodo taken and, and, and knocked out by Shelob and then taken by the orcs into Mordor. Um, and I kind of, I like the way Tolkien wrote that to end, to end the two towers. I wish Jackson had done that, but I think maybe there just may not have been enough to do in Return of the King. Although then again, what, it was like three and a half, four hours. Yeah, you get a certain point, like if you had left some stuff out here, you could have had your special edition right from the beginning. I think that extended edition thing worked well, I mean, all through, but I think it became kind of, I think once they released the first one, realized how successful it was, they started making cuts I don't think they would have made otherwise, you know. One of the big cuts to me that was disappointing when we get to the third one was when they cut out the confrontation between Gandalf and the witch King. There's almost no reason to do that unless you just want to make sure you sell your extended edition later on. So I thought that by the, by the same token, at least with cutting it, you don't see um, the witch King breaking Gandalf's staff, which I've never understood. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, maybe that's a cut that does make it better. I mean, what, because the way Tolkien wrote when your staff is broken, and you see that with, with Saruman at the end, your yeah. staff is broken, you're broken. And it just completely goes against um, the story to, to make that particular. Although when Gandalf shows back up, he really doesn't have the staff. So you're like, where did it go? Like, it's even in the, in the regular cut, you're like, wait, you just lost that? Is that a thing you can lose? <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot, lot going on, hands? you know, war and stuff. Yeah, you lose <laughs> yeah, I'm not arguing that it was a good decision to break the staff. I'm just saying that I think it's... Uh, it's just odd to cut some of those things yeah. in there. In like Saruman's final scene, I get. I don't mind the restructuring of the Shire stuff, like moving the scouring the Shire out. That kind of made sense. But I think in Two Towers, what did you get, what did you guys think about how Eowyn was handled in the Two Towers film versus uh, versus the book? Mm-hmm. And I get that she's not necessarily a integral character necessarily in either one, at least in the two towers, like Eowyn is there. One thing that Nathan and I talked about last time is how um, Tolkien seems to be sort of exercising his, um, 
his love of Beowulf, the story of Beowulf through that Rohan storyline, you know, that if, if you if you played on a big macro level, it's the retelling of Beowulf in a sense. You've got the troubled king and you've got the hero who comes in. And instead of one malformed monster, you have an entire army, you know. And so Eowyn, Eowyn's almost just the shield maiden character at first. I don't know if she gets all of her, like, attributes that make her interesting until Return of the King. But what did you guys think? Was the funeral sequence, was that in the theatrical cut or was that just the extended where she sings, I think yeah. that was only the extended cut. But yeah, yeah. I, I thought that was a brilliant sequence. I I I, I like what Miranda Otto did with the character, um, mm-hmm. but I especially loved the, the the funeral sequence getting a chance to hear her sing. But I mean, I I love singing. I wish honestly, I wish there had been more singing, and that's one thing I really do appreciate about what Jackson did in some of the extendeds is that he actually did bring music in more than um, more than in the theatricals. I. I not I've never, not I haven't watched the theatrical since the theater, honestly, Dave, now to think about it. Because yeah, I just, like, I mean, I, like whenever you said, I go back and watch it, I'm watching the extended. I don't see any reason to go back and watch the theatrical. Two Towers does benefit a lot from that extended but, version, too, I think, almost more than the others, because of how incomplete it seems sort of otherwise in some mm-hmm. ways. Yeah. yeah. I did like Eowyn in the, uh, in the movie and in reading the book again over the, the books again over the summer. But she was actually played fairly well. Uh, very similarly, to my recollection, in both the book and the movie, the kind of flirty stuff between with Aragorn and the way it's handled yeah. in the movie is a little bit like, I, why do we really I'm need so this? But bow to the current, yeah, thinking. Um, but to go back to the earlier question too, I just wanted to wrap up in just about a minute on that. Was uh, I remember sitting through two towers in the theater, waiting for the Shelob scene. I think we all did. I didn't know it wasn't there. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. My memory tells me this was in the two towers. <laughs> I, I had a recollection that we, well, that I at least knew that it wasn't going to be in there, but I could be misremembering. It's been nearly 20 years. So I think we not. suspected it wasn't, or we might have known like right before. I think we were thinking, looking at it and thinking, you know what, maybe not. And then Dave and I, we were kind of thinking really shrewdly, like, okay, two months ago or a month ago, you had the Harry Potter movie came up with a giant spider is Jackson really going to put mm-hmm. his giant spider out now or is he going to wait until later? So I think just by looking at the length of the film and how much stuff they had to cover and that there was no inkling of it in the trailer, not a shot of the cave, not a shot of anything, I think. And then about halfway through, but honestly, like my memory of sitting in the theater was, he's not really going to do it, is he? You know, because... Uh, and cinematically, that's a terrific hook. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know that's a, a key part of the story. And no matter how you're going to tell it, you're going to get to see her and get to see that played out. But I do remember sitting in the theater thinking, hey, you know, I wanted to see this. I guess, guess I got to wait another year. And uh, so I did pull that off. So, yeah, the, the, the breaks were different. But I think from a cinematic perspective. And what, once you do what you do with what he did with Gollum, where he wanted to leave that open, like we said, it almost I think I said this to you, Nathan, last time. There's a sort of point where where Jackson, I think, begins to make the movies for people that have never read the books. You know, so it's this idea of, like, what if I could have seen this for the first time, and maybe maybe Gollum can be redeemed. And if we see him take them willingly to the the cave without all this other stuff happening to him, then we already know the answer. So it leaves that sort of up in the air. Yeah. I mean, I think think it's fair to say that when you look at um, the movies in, in their entirety, you know, it, it is, uh, 
no matter which movie you're looking at, th- there are just pieces of cinema that are very well done. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we could go back and look at these things again, you know, 2000, what was it 2001, 2003, and 2005, or whatever it was. It was all, it was in a row, 2001, 2002, and 2003. 2003, that's right. Yeah, you're right. It it pioneered uh, basically filming back to back to back. And you see that with a lot of films now, but Jackson was the first one to really do that. Right. And make sure the script was finished before they shot it, you know, Star Wars. Right. (laughs) And then then you also see just um, just such cutting edge technology. I mean, you know, going back and seeing the CGI, you know, I can remember just being blown away by those, that, that battle um, in Pelennor and how, you know, they had this huge collision between um, the, you know, the orcs of uh, Mordor and, and, you know, the, the men of Rohan and, and Gondor, just the way they did that. I just, I remember being so blown away. I think, I think some of the problem is today the technology is so advanced that you can actually, you can pick those things out. But I remember back then, you know, HDMI was just becoming a thing, um, you know, that people were picking up and it was still, you know, thousands of dollars. That wasn't the normal medium. I mean, you know, you could, at that point, you know, you could still get the VHS copies of those movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think to a certain extent, having some of the, the lower resolution really just helped sell that stuff because it was the technology that you were working with all the p- components of the technology at the time. Um, and, and you're right. It, it, just, it was mind blowing at the time. And it was, it was mind bending the things that they were doing and working with and how they were doing it and really um, served to advance uh, a lot of special effects that we see and experience even today. Um, and so I think when you're looking at it and you're looking at it as a complete story, Fellowship to Return of the King, which is what you should be doing, whether you're reading it or watching it, um, it's, it, it has flaws and issues. And again, like you said, Nathan, if you've never read the books, I mean, this is fantastic. You know, this is a fantastic piece um, of, of media and, and a fantastic uh, mythology that has been told. Um, I think the problem is for for people like us who have been so invested in these books, yeah, uh, we look at key components and we're like, no. <laughs> well, it's funny because my wife and I are having this discussion uh, because the kids, right, they haven't seen, they hadn't seen or, or read anything. So we made a decision. We're like, you know what? We're going to read the Harry Potter books first. Then we'll watch Harry Potter movies. But we're going to watch the Lord of the Rings movies first, and then we'll read the books because you lose nothing from watching the movies first. The book is such its own experience and its own journey that you get – I feel like you still get everything. Maybe you don't have some surprises, but there's so much else going on, and that's even going to be appreciated by them in another year or so. But the movies, I think you do suddenly have that buildup of the movies lose a little bit if you do that in that, in that order. So I, that's kind of what we did. It's so funny, Dave, you'll appreciate this because my daughter hates spiders, like hates, hates, hates spiders. And we watched them, the extended editions over the course of a few days. Mm-hmm. And it was over the quarantine. They had seen them before. They'd seen pieces of them before, but we were watching them and she was really into it. And after two towers and, you know, Gollum keeps on, but we're going to let her do it. And she's like, who is her? Who is her? And she's so, she asked me like, 
on the hour, every hour, the next day before we're watching Return thing, who do you think her is, Dad? And she has a long talk, and she's like, I think it could be this. It could be an evil unicorn, and she's naming all these different things. It could be a banshee, and she's which is, I think, what Jen thought it was, because Jen also was watching the movie, like, with, who was in the theater with us way back in 2002 or whatever when it came out. And uh, she didn't know what Shelob was. And so to watch Izzy's face when those spider crawl, well, she sees the webs, and she looks at me like, really? Like, <laughs> she's like, wait a minute, is it? what I think it is. And I'm like, yes. And she scowls at me and then it climbs, it climbs out, man. That is the nastiest giant spider I've ever seen in a movie. Like, And, and I think that Jackson's background in horror, I think served him very well in the Shelob sequence. I, I think, um, I, 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 th- I think it shows that he has a background in that, those kind of films to do. You, that. you see the that one, here. <laughs> the one thing though, I don't think technology is everything. If you look at the Hobbit, you look at the Hobbit film, uh, Jackson made the same mistake with his prequel trilogy that Lucas made with his. He relies way too much on CG. It's very yeah. obvious in places yeah. where it is, and I think it suffers. Whereas he did a lot more practical stuff mm-hmm. with um, with with Lord of the Rings films, and I think as a result, Lord, the Lord of the Rings films hold up so much better uh, visually than what the Hobbit films mm-hmm. do. And the Hobbit films were made. I mean, when was the when the last going out? Five years ago. 2016, 2017, something like that. Yeah, so it's like 2015, yeah. maybe. Yeah. I mean, it's but yeah, I think you think you're right, Nathan. 2015. But yeah, we tried to. Well, we watched those with the kids, and they kind of liked them. But they were like, yeah, Johnny kept saying through the whole, the through all three of those movies, Dad, it looks like my video game. It looks like my video game, and that's basically true. And yeah, to what you were saying, Nathan, it's like yeah, the lower resolution stuff. But I was going to say what David just said, which is, I really appreciate that. Jackson made those decisions to use miniatures in some cases and mm. models. And like, yes, does it look realistic? No, but it still is impressive. Like, was they're riding to Helm's Deep when they're riding up, uh, you know, um, to Gondor and, mm-hmm. and Gandalf is going around that. Yeah, I know mm-hmm. that's a little set, but it looks so impressive. Mm-hmm. You know, the parts of it that are real, some of it's not. But to, at the same time, in 2002, to, to make what Dave is saying, I think that movie comes out in December, That uh, the, the Two Towers, and in the, the summer before it was Attack of the Clones, that second Star Wars movie, where nothing was real, where right. as impressive as maybe a certain piece of here there was, and it looked like sci-fi book covers, you just got the impression there were just a bunch of people walking around in front of a green screen. You know, there was mm-hmm. no – didn't have any kind of heft or weight to it at all, you know. Mm-hmm. No, and I wasn't, what I was just saying was like, when you, I think the model and set stuff holds up better than CGI does. Oh, the CGI, the wargs particularly are kind of weak looking, yeah. Yeah, technology will always get better and better. And so, you know, when you, when you view older technology on a new medium, it's, it's always going to, it's never going to look quite as clean as you remember it when you first saw it in theaters at the time it came out. No, I do, I do agree with you. I think those models and those things held up so much better. But what I'm saying is like, I think even if you were to watch the medium of, of Lord of the Rings on the medium of technology that you had then, it would, it would still be as awe inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Where today you're right. You're absolutely right. You look at the Hobbit and you're just kind of like, if I wanted to watch a video game, I mean, I'd go on YouTube. I mean, uh, you know, it just... If you were going to animate it, go all the way, honestly. Exactly, yeah, yes. Give, give us the animated version of The Hobbit. I'd rather see that than, you know, what what he gave us in that. And, and to your point, David, I think, I, I mean, I honestly, I think he was just trying to cash a paycheck, really. It just, 
it did no justice and served nothing in the books whatsoever where I really truly believe that even in the differences that he made and the things that he changed in the Lord of the Rings, he was trying to do justice to the story and to the book where he gets to the Hobbit and it's like, uh, and here's another bill and here's another bill. And, uh, it just, you know, well, I, the I wish the Thorough had his shot at making the Hobbit because yeah. uh, that would have been, I think something would have been really impressive to watch. And I know, and I don't think Del Toro would have been as reliant on CGI as, mm-hmm. And I mean, you look at a movie like Pan's Labyrinth, and it, it shows you what could have been with The Hobbit. Yes. Huh. Yeah, there's a texture and reality to that film, and to all of his films, mostly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very good. We are, um, we're about to wind down on time here, but just wanted to uh, see if uh, anybody had anything else they wanted to say or add or you know, throw in there. This has been uh, tons of fun. We're going to make sure that we definitely get information out whenever we do uh, the return of the King. I'm not going to put a, uh, I'm not going to put a time frame on that, Nathan, because we tried that after fellowship yeah, right. <laughs> and two months later. Um, <laughs> so, you know, when we get to that, we'll definitely get all the information, but last thoughts or comments from, uh, from any of you guys. I think I covered everything I wanted to. The characterizations are good. The uh, as we discussed in the first Mackie, hold off. I think the characterizations are, are overall solid, and they weave a good story. And as I mentioned before, you get uh, elements of uh, of Christ figures in a number of the different characters, which is interesting to look at from a Christian perspective. Although I think, as we discussed before, he clearly didn't intend for it to be an allegory, but he was so steeped in uh, his theology uh, that it just comes through in the writing. And he really shows himself well as a creator of, of another, Tolkien himself as the creator of a, a, of a quite unique world. And uh, there's probably not much other literature that goes to the depth of someone creating several different languages and doing it well and consistently and, and making it... Uh, uh, a key element of the stories, um, as you, we said at the beginning, um, uh, just the elements of different literature uh, forms, some of its historical narratives, some of its poetry, and that's kind of the same thing we get uh, out of God's Word. Uh, it's rather interesting, uh, and I hadn't even thought of it until you had mentioned that, but that, uh, <coughs> that kind of comes through again in the writing, and, and you don't want to over-allegorize it and cheapen what Tolkien's done that way. Uh, he wouldn't appreciate that, I'm sure. But you can see um, the depth of theology he held and how it's, we as Christian teachers and artists, uh, those of us who are artists, not me, but uh, you know, need to remember that as we're trying to reflect, um, be creative on behalf of our creator. And that's not always that well done anymore. In the yeah, tell a good story, guys. First and foremost. Yeah. Might just do that. Just tell a good story. Absolutely. Yep. yep. <laughs> well, I'm not an artist, um, and I don't uh, create things other than just other than draft decisions for administrative law judges and <laughs> security. But, um, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> so, you know, who am I to judge? But um, I, I generally. Critic. You can judge whatever you want. <laughs> no, that's true. Um, I, th- I think I 
said, I think I, and I think everyone here would agree with me that the, if I had to pick between book and movie, it would be book over movie because yeah. I think Tolkien did a better job. But I think what Jackson was able to was able to achieve was pretty remarkable, um, even despite the issues that I've, I, I have with some of the characterizations of Aragorn and Faramir and Frodo. I, I, and even though it is my least favorite of the three, I'm happy to sit down and watch it at the drop of a hat. I love all of Jackson's movies, even if they're not the books. Um, and it was brought home to me when I did go back and reread um, The Lord of the Rings earlier this uh, spring that there are differences in the two, even that, that I had remember, even that I hadn't remembered. But I will still sit down and watch these movies um, anytime. Yeah. I think that's a good point, Dave. That like the things that we're kind of nitpicking, and, and you know, we were intending this to be an exploration, not so much. Oh, this is bad, and this is you know good. I think the simple fact that we're sitting here, we're talking about, you know, if only they had done this with Faramir, or they only done this with Aragorn. Like you look at what's happened to other classic books and things that people love, you know, like that. These are the things we're discussing. I think shows the level of achievement that Jackson did get. That you know, that overall these are great. These are great works in their own right. That were groundbreaking in the medium in which they exist, and it made huge leaps and bounds for better or worse in how people perceive fantasy filmmaking. You know, I think a lot of the and almost any of the fantasy stuff you're getting right now is mostly a result of the fact that the Lord of the Rings came through and made it look like it was profitable again, that it was something that could be done. I mean, that can only explain why we're getting a how many million dollar Dune movie. You know. <laughs> <laughs> shortly because of the fact that it was proven that, Hey, this can happen. And, um, and as a, a semi plug, I will say, I'm, I'm, I think at Phantom Galaxy, we're going to do, uh, we are going to try to do a book reading thing too. And I think I'd like to do Dune, maybe do a reread of Dune. If anybody is up for that, uh, before the new movie comes up. Cause I think Dune, the book is very good. Dune, the movie from 1980 is incomprehensible. And there was a pretty good sci-fi channel Dune movie, but yes. the budget constraints were there that I'm, I liked what they did in that that so well that I'm really curious to see what this director, who's done some really good movies, the Blade Runner sequel and Arrival and Sicario and a couple of different movies. I'm curious to see what he's going to do with it. But yeah, I, I don't think a lot of these big epics that we've gotten would have even been attempted uh, had Jackson not knocked that out of the park to an extent. I do love the cast in the 1980s, Dune, though. Uh, I have to say. Um, oh, of Dune? Sting and Patrick Stewart and... and, and Kyle yeah. McGill, yeah, it, it, there's tons Lundin. of people in it. Yeah. It's crazy, honestly. Well, David, you bringing that up, I mean, that's the one thing that I've got to say about um, Lord of the Rings is is I, I can't even remember what I had pictured the characters in my mind before the movies came out, but I feel like those are what the characters are. So every time I'm reading the books now, that's just... That's what's coming to my mind. It's Viggo Mortensen as Aragorn. It's Elijah Wood as Frodo Baggins. It's Sean Astin as Samwise. It's you know Ian McClellan as Gandalf. Those are the images that are coming to my mind every time I'm reading the books now. And again, I mean, I can't even remember what I thought they looked like before. I'm sure I had an image of them, but <laughs> that's the, a good that's point. Who they are. Do you remember, someone, this reminded me just the other day because somebody was posting that Sean Connery is now 90 years old, you know, mm -hmm. um, so... Good, good for you, Sean. He hasn't been in movies <laughs> since 2003 because he kind of quit after that League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie. Well, but when, you, you, when you put him in a bear suit, 
dude. I mean, you know. Oh, that, yeah. Well, that was a little earlier, but it, it was <laughs> that Alan Quartermain thing. That's a shame. That could have been a great movie, but whatever. But they reminded me that, yeah, he was in the running or he had actually been offered the part mm-hmm. of Gandalf at one point. And I think when they cast, when they mentioned this was happening and then that that was in the works, I remember thinking, yeah, Sean Connery, that's perfect. You know, now I don't know why I really thought that now. I'm thinking back on it and remembering Highlander. But, you know, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's the fanboy guy. Like, yeah, can you see Sean Connery up there? And like the nuances that Ian McKellen brings to him and everything that he brings to the character. It's like, you're right. Almost any of these people, even people we didn't, I mean, how many actors really were like discovered in a sense out of this film, you know, like really, and even guys who have been working before, like Sean Bean, you know, uh, Bean doesn't get cast in all these things. He gets cast in after the fact, even though he's killed 20 minutes in, you know, he, he doesn't get cast in these things without this. Uh, Orlando, um, Orlando Bloom doesn't have a career. I almost said Orlando Jones. Oh my gosh. Orlando Bloom. Orlando Jones doesn't have a career. End of sentence. But Orlando <laughs> Bloom doesn't really have a career if not for Lord of the Rings, you know. Um, you imagine Orlando Jones is legless? Yeah, I try not to. Yeah, that'd, that'd be funny. That'd be like that Dungeons and Dragons movie they made a few years before this, where Marlon Wayans was an elf or something. Yeah. Didn't, didn't Connery say he turned it down because he didn't understand it? That's possible. It's Probably. possible, but then that's no – that doesn't explain why he made the movie Zardoz, um, <laughs> which no well, one understood. Presumably, if he understood The Lord of the Rings, he would have understood not to make the movie Zardoz. <laughs> well, that was, that was much earlier. I mean, Highlander doesn't make any sense. I'm not sure what, what he meant by that. Um, I thought he, be, yeah. he played a pretty good Japanese guy with a Scottish accent. He, he tur- yeah, right. <laughs> Egyptian. Egyptian. He turned down the role of uh, – uh, Morpheus in the Matrix too. That might have been the one he didn't understand, and maybe he just you know got him confused. But all right. Well, this was a great time, guys. Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, like I said, we'll definitely get um, information out there. Um, I'm gonna uh, hopefully this actually fully recorded. If it didn't, then. Hey, this one's just for us, guys. This won't be the only um, episode we, <laughs> we recorded. We record there may not be a hidden yes. uh, Stranger Things episode somewhere <laughs> right. on the uh, interwebs. That, that would be weird, right? Like if you went to post it and it actually posted Stranger, the unrecorded <laughs> Stranger Things podcast that Nathan just found on his computer somewhere. Yeah, we did that. Uh, was it last summer? We did a Stranger Things it podcast. It wasn't recorded, and then Nathan and Zach recorded one later. But it was just them talking about the funny things we said on the yeah. previous episode that no longer exists. So, and then we had what, like the last twenty minutes? We were able to salvage like the last twenty minutes. I think it was. Yes, because you just so randomly suddenly out. I'm in the yeah. episode. I'm like, where did I come from? That's crazy. That's like <laughs> this is like Saruman just stuck right back into uh, Return of the King. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, this was great. Just want to remind our listeners, um, you know, to definitely shoot us uh, some love reviews on uh, your favorite listening service. It just gets us higher up there. But primarily on, uh, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Yeah, that's our, that's our biggest one. But, yeah, you know, whatever you listen to. And actually, um, some good news for people out there. We are um, in the process. Podbean is expanding their uh, reach. So I'm in the process of working on getting us on some other platforms as well. So as soon as we have those up and running, I will let our listeners know and you can listen to us, uh, you know, when on whatever you listen to. So um, guys, again, this was great. We look forward to the next one. Return of the King. Uh, if you haven't been reading it, go ahead and get started and we will uh, join you next time. Until then, we just rock the Casbah. These go to 11.